welcome to the last episode of Headbox Connect for 2019. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Anne-Marie Rossiter. I'm the head of marketing at Headbox. And today in the studio, I have Andrew Needham, our CEO, who is going to help introduce uh, our very exciting last episode of the year. Headbox is on a mission to reinvent the global events industry through technology, but we believe that you can't reinvent an industry without bringing the outside in. So this podcast will cover everything from technology and challenger brands to disruptive mindsets and entrepreneurship. So whatever industry you're in, you'll find some inspiration from some of our fantastic guests. So on this episode of Headbox Connect, we have a live recording of our latest panel event which took place last week at level 39 in canary wharf in london and it was on the topic of the future of well-being in the workplace it's a topic that we are hugely passionate about at headbox and andrew i know that you you have some thoughts on this so why why is sort of wellness and mental well-being in the workplace so important to you so interestingly it was earlier this year that i went to go and see a talk by dr ranjan chatterjee who's written a book on stress management called The Stress Solution. And at the beginning of his talk, he said that, the, according to the World Health Organization, that the biggest epidemic facing us to, today and in the 21st century is stress. Yeah. And that 80% of uh, appointments to go and see your doctor are stress-related. So it is a massive issue, and I think it is uh, very important as uh, as a CEO that um, I I look after the health and well-being of our employees. Yeah, of and course. it was this that precipitated uh, us, as you know, to set up our our own health and well-being committee, mm. um, which we which we which we did in February March time early this mm. year yeah, and as a result of that we've put in a lot of a number of initiatives that are going to help with the the health and well-being of uh, of headboxers and i think in headboxers case it's particularly important because we have such a young workforce and for some of our headboxers it's their first job and i think there are a number of stresses and strains that uh, that come with that uh, and on top of i think the stresses and strains that young people, I think, face uh, today compared to to what um, we had to deal with in my generation. And um, and and that is uh, and I think that is why we put that we put that that initiative, those initiatives in in place. And I think it also reminded me of the time when I was in my 20s. It was uh, the end of my 20s where I just sold my first company and the transaction had gone through and then there was a a big issue that we had to deal with immediately after the the transaction that could actually have derailed the whole Mm. the whole uh, purchase and it was the first time in my life that I experienced stress yeah. I mean, serious stress. And I think the point that actually the wheels, you know, the wheels pretty much came off. Mm. I think it was a bit of a baptism of fire for my wife as well, uh, because I think we, uh, we, were getting, we were getting married that year. Or I think we just got married and we were on holiday in, in Sri Lanka. I was, uh, I, I found myself you know, wide awake at, at three o'clock in the morning yeah. uh, on, on, on holiday. Mm. And and I think that was the first time 
I realised, uh, hold on, this is this is really quite scary. Yeah. And I think until that point in your in your life, maybe and, may, and maybe pe- young people listening to this would have experienced uh, would have experienced extreme spre- stress before that, maybe during their uh, in their teens, you know, yeah, with exams and things exams, like that. Yeah. <clears throat> but in, until you've experienced that, it is really really scary because there's a part of you at that age that thinks you're invincible. Uh, you're invincible. Yeah. yeah. Nothing <clears throat> nothing can stop you. And then suddenly, when it does, it's uh, it's a bit terrifying. And yeah. I think, um, and I think that's why I think in this panel discussion, really understanding what your own limits are, mm. see, looking out for the signs that uh, you can see in yourself when you're perhaps going into what I call the red zone. Yeah. That um, that I think you need to be w- aware of, and that was something that I think I really learned at the end of my my twenties, and and therefore this is something we we talk openly about. I talk openly about at Headbox with headboxers yeah. and I think was uh, for me makes it very personal to really ensure that I'm doing everything I can as, as the CEO to show that um, this issue is really important and we want to, to help with the health and well-being of, um, of all our headboxers. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really interesting angle on it especially the young people at headbox obviously because we have we have such a young workforce but I think also when I was reading up on this topic and and we were working on putting this panel together. I came across some really interesting stats from Mind that I felt, obviously Mind being one of the leading mental health charities in the UK, mm. that I felt really shocked by. Um, and and these were one in five people um, that they had obviously surveyed as part of this study had agreed that they called in sick to avoid work when asked how workplace stress had affected them. And then another one was that 30% of staff disagreed with the statement, I'd feel able to talk openly with my line manager if I was feeling stressed. Um, And then the last one, which I thought was bonkers, is 56% of employers, employers, not employees, said that they would like to do more to improve uh, staff well-being, but they don't feel like they've got the right training or guidance. Mm. And I think think, think that that, uh, all of those points, I think, uh, are, are really important. And I think that that... For me, I think I, I want everyone at Headbox to know that when they look at uh, they look at um, the, their CEO, they don't think, oh, you know, this is someone who uh, doesn't ever get stressed, hasn't had to deal with these um, these issues. Yeah, in, no, in, yeah, it's really in, true. In, in in his life, uh, I want I want them to know. Yes, I have, and it has, um, and it will affect all of us. And mm. if it hasn't affected. Uh, someone, you know, one of the headboxers so far in their life. It will, yeah. The likelihood is that it, it that it will. Yeah. And I think by bringing it out into the into the open, supporting, trying to come up with initiatives that really support then uh, headboxers uh, with their their health and well being, uh, talking about it, knowing that this is uh, something that they uh, has happened to 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 people, their peers around mm. them, or people they may look up to, makes it, I think, less of a a taboo issue and hopefully uh, will allow a, a and encourage a environment of, of openness where we know yeah. that there's of openness and support. Mm. Um, so I think that's really important. I do too. So uh, we are delighted then to share the, the live recording from our Headbox Connect panel event uh, last week, which was at Level 39 in Canary Wharf in London. Uh, and I think we should hand over to our three wonderful mental health experts. So we hope that you enjoy. Hi everyone. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming to join us bright and early this morning. Um, what a fantastic view. Has everyone taken their snaps for Instagram? No? If you haven't, form an orderly queue afterwards, I think. Um, but look, thank you. We appreciate it. It's really early in the morning. Uh, and just a big welcome and a big thank you to all our panellists, obviously, and um, for joining us as well. So 
Just to kick things off, I would like to start by sharing some interesting data from um, MIND, who is obviously one of the UK's leading mental health charities. So more than one in five, so that is 21%, agree that they have called in sick to avoid work when asked how workplace stress has affected them. 14% agreed that they had resigned and 42% had considered resigning when asked about how workplace stress had affected them. 30% of staff disagreed with the statement, I would feel able to talk openly to my line manager if I was feeling stressed. And 56% of employees said that they would like to do more to improve staff wellbeing, but don't feel that they have the right training or guidance. So I was reading that last week, and I don't know about you guys, but I felt really shocked by that, by those statements. Um, and I think they're really, they're really powerful, because whether you're actually an, an employee or an employer, um, I think that everybody in this room can probably recall a time when they were stressed at some point in their career. Um, and I can definitely say that there's been points in my career where I wish I had the kind of the tools or the training to have dealt with that a little bit, a little bit differently and perhaps a little bit better. But similarly, I think that the talking about mental health well-being in an organisation, the positive impacts that, that can have is actually really astounding as well on the flip side of that. So we're super passionate about this conversation and pushing this agenda forward at Headbox. And so I hope that um, I hope that you'll enjoy what we've put together for you today. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, with our three panelists today the importance of mental health and well-being in the workplace, its relationship with technology and what we think that the future should look like. So again, a big thank you everyone for joining us this morning. I'm going to hand over and let our lovely panelists uh, introduce themselves. So Petra, would you like to kick off? Sure. Hello everyone. Morning. Morning. <laughs> oh, good. Um, so I'm Petra Belzebor. I'm a mental health <laughs> consultant. I work with a range of industries, nationally, internationally even recently, um, think, helping businesses think about their overarching mental health strategy and how to create sustainable change through consultancy, but also training and development. Um, I also have a mental health story. So I was born and raised in a religious cult, and it led me to a period of time that I completely spiraled out and was suicidal myself. And so a lot of what I do comes from this real passionate place of what I had to teach myself to learn resilience, happiness, all the things that um, have allowed me to be successful. And by successful, I mean both in business, but also in family life and creating a, a space of kind of contentment and excitement about the work that I do. I host a couple of podcasts. I'm a psychotherapist and a coach, and I think that's all you can probably handle for this morning. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was a much better introduction. Yeah. Um, George, now on to you. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so my, my name's George. I work at a company called Sanctus, and we are a startup on a mission to get people working on the mental health just like they do their, their physical health. Uh, we've got dreams and, and grand visions of one day putting mental health gyms on the high street, but what we do right now is create a version of the gym within the workplace which takes the form of one-to-one of -one coaching. So we give all individuals a space to just work on the mental health, whatever point of, of the mental health spectrum they're, they're at. Um, I too have a, have a mental health story, as I'm sure many people do here. Um, I went through a period of yeah, I think not, not knowing that mental health was a thing that, that I had and I ignored it for a very, very long time. Um, yeah, got myself into a position where I was depressed and suicidal and had to, had to really work on mental health. And then actually I continued to work on it once I was recovered and I could see that there's an enormous upside to mental health and I became like George Bell 2.0. So I think that's why I'm really passionate about getting people to work on mental health forever. That's me. 
Ready? We're gonna do all right. Or? Yeah. Yeah. That's good, yeah. Wasn't it? yeah. We're gonna school you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a great ad to the future. Yeah. Hi everyone. My name is Madeline. So I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Level L E V E L L dot I O. And similarly, I think it was interesting the stats that you were reading earlier because a lot of them were actually about stress. Mm. And so that I come from a place of having been in jobs and combining that with my own personal lifestyle, which meant that I was in a constant state of chronic stress ultimately leading to burnout, but which really dramatically impacted both my health and also my relationships. <clears throat> and founded Level really off the back of that, so with the mission to eliminate burnout. Um, we work directly with both people, and, but mostly organizations, to help them actually tackle mental health, ill mental health as a symptom, and poor productivity and performance as a symptom, by understanding the prevalence of chronic stress and burnout across organizations, and then working to build awareness and make that change. And what we find is the change happens both on lifestyle, but also in actually work and kind of working relationships and work culture. So there's a fundamentally interesting opportunity for a transformation there that we help companies with. Amazing. Thanks, yeah. guys. Um, so why don't we kick things off and we'll go back, we'll go back to Petra to start things off with why you think, apart from the obvious, why you think it's so important to have conversations like this about you know, mental well-being in the workplace. I mean, um, I want to live in a world where health means both mental health and physical mm. health. It means productivity, it means being our best selves, all those sorts of things. It's really important now because I think the world is changing. And uh, with, with our devices in our hands all the time, it's as if our fight or flight response is going off all the time, even if we're essentially safe. So our mental health issues are on the rise, and that's going to affect us in the workplace. And I want to live in a world where we can bring our whole selves to work because the evidence suggests that that's where we can be uh, more productive, uh, be our best selves, retain talent, so stay in the workplace. Um, and also, I just think that to counter some of the effects of the world that we live in in cities like this, um, empathy, human connection, it's, it's about all of us. So mental health is about all of us, not just sort of the one in four that might experience an, an illness. It's, we can't ignore it anymore. Yeah, I think to build on that, traditionally, when people talk about mental health, they're talking about just the one in four that, that have a mental health issue, which is obviously such an important part of, of the conversation. But actually, what I've learned is that four in four people have mental health. It's every single one of us. And whatever is going on in our lives, good or bad, big or small, personal, professional, it's mental health. So the way you show up to work, the kind of leader you want to be, the kind of manager you want to be, uh, if you're having trouble with a client or with a colleague, that all falls under the mental health umbrella in some way. So actually, by talking about mental health at work, you can become a better leader or manager or colleague or, or employee. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think ultimately health is both a resource and it's also a symptom of, you know, how we are and how we interact in our, in our daily lives. And I found that the conversation about mental health has been a really important sort of almost like gateway or window into talking about some of the deeper root issues mm -hmm. and actually triggering the question like, well, okay, if ill mental health is an issue, how do I actually want to be in a positive way? And then let's design kind of our work and lives for that. Yeah. Ooh, really, really good points. I think um, what's particularly interesting about the group of people that we have in the room today, as we were talking about before, is that the majority of people here are involved in the events industry in some way. And um, a couple of years ago, Forbes uh, ranked event management as the fourth most stressful job um, in the world, um, which was pretty astounding. But actually, I think anyone that's been in events for more than five minutes can probably 
um, confirm that that is actually the case. So it involves, you know, really anti-social hours, long hours. Um, it's a very demanding role, lots of stakeholders. Um, it's very fast-paced. What kind of impact, and again, this is kind of to, to everyone, so please jump in. What kind of impact do you think that that environment has on, you know, somebody's mental, mental well-being? Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously going to have a, have a big impact, and I think what people then tend to do is they take it on themselves or they, they kind of, um, yeah, like, I guess go into their shell a little bit so people might end up working harder or yeah. stress levels rise, whatever it might be, and then people don't talk about those things, and I think that's when maybe they withdraw a little bit and connection with other people breaks and they're not being honest about how they really feel, so they start to wear a mask, so they've got kind of two lives going on, and that's when everything really just starts to, to build and, and sort of, I guess, like compounds on, yeah. on each other. Yeah, I also think that sometimes in businesses, assumptions are made about how we need to behave. So um, the mask goes up and we think that because our boss behaves in a certain way or because the team are always seem to be always on, therefore we must be always on. And we forget to have the conversation that if we've had a late one, can we come in later the next day or how can we balance it out across the week or the month, even if you're pushing hard to a deadline at some point. I mean, I don't envy the event plan. I go to events all the time. I sweep in and I go, yes, I'll have coffee like I did this morning, right? Um, and I go, are you okay? I often go to the events person and go, how are you? Like, everyone's going to come. Don't worry. It's okay. Because it is. It's so stressful. Like, I literally don't plan them because um, you think, is everyone going to show up? Is the coffee going to arrive? Like, is the event? Like, it's, there's so much that goes through your head right at the end. Um, but there's something around personal responsibility as well. So there's, we need to, as leaders, create space for open and honest conversations when it comes to this. So I've got a group of, a team of facilitators, I've got one in the audience actually, hey, um, who um, when we have, we sort of have a monthly call because we're all remote, right? And our first question is always, how's your mental health been this month? And I have to start, so I lead by example in talking about my mental health, and I'm normalizing the conversation about good mental health. Um, so I might say, I took up kickboxing just so I could, you know, look after my mental health. It's really helped in this way. Someone else might, you know, so it's like a positive solution-focused conversation, but we're naming what might be going on. What are the stress levels like at the moment? How are each of you managing your stress levels? What can I do to support you? So I have to lead by example in that conversation, but... I would also say that if a leader is not leading by example, there's this great like managing upwards kind of idea, right? Where we can go, this is what I need to be my best self. You know, I need to be able to hit the gym at some point. How can we work this out so that everyone's getting what they need and we're making the best events possible? That's a really interesting point about managing upwards. I think there's a few questions that we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Um, Madeline, what do you think? Yeah, fascinating. I mean, I love this because um, it goes right down into the psychology and also like physiology of stress and burnout. And kind of it's really interesting to understand why do we feel stressed. Um, stress comes from a situation in which you perceive or you feel there's an imbalance between what I have to do or think I have to do or expectations or we kind of call them demands and like the resources that I feel I have to, to deal with them. Mm. So the more in which we're thinking, and this may be happening in the way you're, either what's going on or how you perceive it at an event, like, as you said, like, oh no, what about this? What if people don't show up? All these kind of like anxieties, fears, expectations, those are what is then kind of causing that feeling of stress, which is really interesting because you can also use different techniques to take a step back and just rebalance from that and kind of pick off like what's really real, what do I really need to be dealing with right now, what is something that I can put in the future? 
And you'd be amazed at how that can kind of change how you feel, actually, in the immediate moment, which has a lot of positive consequences later. Mm, and you've kind of segued nicely into the next question, which was around how people should deal with that, with that stress. I think there was, that was some great tips there, that like prioritization and actually taking a step back and taking a pause. Um, because also, I think, fundamentally, people who work in really high-paced roles can sometimes actually forget how much they're getting done. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, if you actually stop... <laughs> And, you know, like, I say this to my team all the time, you know, if we actually stopped and re recap on what we've actually achieved in a week, you know, mm. you'd feel pretty good about that. But you're so, you're, like, going at 100 mm. miles an hour all the time. You haven't stopped. You're feeling really stressed. You're kind of pushing to that finish line. And you kind of don't take, you don't have a moment to take stock. Yeah. Totally. So I think what you were saying is really, really interesting. It's really interesting, actually, because there's these two dynamics. Like, one is, what am I perceiving of what's going on? Is that kind of causing me to feel stressed or anxious? Mm. Taking a step back and saying, like, I'm great. Everything's actually going to go do well, right? <laughs> Let's just recenter my confidence. Yeah. And actually, that doesn't need to be dealt with. That doesn't need to be dealt mm. with. Let's go. Perfect. But you also have to be cognizant of how much are you actually working, mm. right? That does actually place a strain on your body. Do you have, we use this, this thing around well-being routines or like your non-negotiables. What are yeah. the things that you just need to get in so that you know that you can survive the hours, whether that's gym or time with your kids? And that's a really important strategy as well. So you maintain the actual physical balance of the mm. amount you're working and the amount you get in rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think stress, it shows up in different ways to different people. And I think first it's paying attention to yourself and, and when you get stressed, like I know when, I don't, when I'm not sleeping so well and my skin doesn't look great, I'm probably a bit stressed. And that's kind of my, my warning signs. And then from that, everyone has to look after themselves in, in their own way. So. For me, it's, it's going to the gym. I know you said you, you do kickboxing, which, I mean, that thought that terrifies me, so I probably, that's going to stress me out more. But I, yeah. I have to release well, adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, with Petra or just kickboxing in general? Uh, both, both, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, everyone needs to, to kind of find their thing. I, I know that, um, say, meditation is, is meant to be amazing for, for stress, but I personally don't like doing meditation. And... I tried to, to keep up with the headspace, like numbers every single day, and I, I couldn't do it. And actually, that started to stress me out more. So I've, I've become really good at knowing that exercise is good for me, but meditation isn't. So everyone needs to just find their sort of um, toolkit tool for, mm. for dealing with stress. I really love that, the fact that you just admitted to actually something that is a very popular way of trying to relax and trying to give yourself a little bit of breathing room actually doesn't work for you. I think that's mm. such an important piece of advice because it's not just one size fits all and it's not, you know, everybody needs to go to the gym or everyone needs to do this or everyone needs to do that. I think that exploring and trying to figure mm. out what you need and you, you very rarely hear that. Mm. You know, you hear all the buzzwords and all the, mm. you know, these are the things that will work for you and you will have good mental health if you do this. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Very... it's not formula, yeah. I would say. It mm. has to be personal. And I love what you said about celebrating the wins. It's not very British to celebrate the wins and be like, yay me, look at that event, right? <laughs> Love um, but there's something about self-awareness and reflecting on the good, like creating moments of pause. So it might not be meditation or it might be, I often try and go for a walk or just have some movement so I can be aware of the symptoms in my body that are telling me whether this is good stress that's gonna make me hit a deadline, or whether it's toxic stress that's gonna build up over time into kind of a burnout state. Mm. Um, but there's something, again, from a leadership perspective, how do we get our people to celebrate? the wins? How do we let them know that we're proud of them when they have achieved something? 
positive reinforcement. You know, it's rather than just noticing and having the big talks when something hasn't gone well, like that all helps with creating that mentally healthy culture. And I love that it's not a one size fits all. So, but, but again, creating those spaces for open conversation to be like, what works for you? What works for you? And so that when someone is in that toxic stress where maybe their decisions and productivity are being affected, we can kind of go, what do you need to do to look after yourself now? So you're empowering people to create choice to do the things that work for them rather than saying like go to the meditation room you know as if it's mm. some kind of create space for you in the way that I would mm. so you're mm. projecting our way onto other people which isn't great leadership mm. I think it, it can be hard now because there's so much advice out there you have to yeah meditate every day you have to walk you have to set your intention go into nature yeah, get up talk, before, yeah, 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 yeah like, have therapy yoga, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think it, it it becomes stressful and, and people feel they have to do all these things get their 10 fruit and veg and yeah, it, it it's, actually, it's 10 now? Yeah, 15. It's, it, it raises every week. Yeah, it, I feel stressed even kind of trying to list off the things. So I think, like you said, creating a space where people can learn more about themselves and what they need is the best, the best way forward. And can I just throw in an example? Throw in uh, a, like a way that works within your schedule. So you're saying like, oh, it's 10 things to add on to my to-do list. I love the example. I worked with um, a head teachers network in Islington. And this head teacher said every day on the Piccadilly line, he hit two like really long escalators. And it was like a prompt for him, a trigger to stand on the right, because that's just smart, right, in London. Um, but in that long escalator, he would mindfully breathe on the way there and it acted as a buffer to get into his school and on the way back he'd go down and stand and mindfully breathe as a buffer to go into his house. So sometimes we need to audit our schedule and just be like what are the ways within it that we can yeah, look yeah, after yeah, yeah, our well-being yeah. rather than going I now have 10 more things on my to-do mm. list. Nice. Yeah, wow, that's so funny. We've actually been doing experiments like this with people and absolutely just like take a look top down, where can I pull things out? Mm. And then where can I add things in? And make it all about you and what works for you. One, try one thing, two things, make that a little bit of a habit. Ignore mm. everything else that everyone else is telling you and just focus on how you feel when you do those things. And I think that's really, really cool advice. It's very efficient as well, that. Oh, I love a bit yeah. of efficiency. <laughs> I feel like we're gonna get along quite a lot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so my next question is specifically for George. So when I called you to ask you if you'd like to do this panel with us, we had a really um, long conversation about what you think the benefits are for an organisation to have a really open dialogue and conversation and culture around speaking about mental health and stress and burnout. And um, you guys have some pretty um, powerful opinions on, on what that can unlock. So mm -hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think some businesses don't want to open up the mental health conversation in, in the workplace, but these conversations are happening in your workplace, whether you want them to or not. And every single workplace around the world, mental health conversations are happening because mental health is, is literally everything that's going on in our lives, you know, the way we show up, the way we are being as a leader or a manager. These conversations are, are happening. Maybe people don't realise it's, it's the mental health thing, but it, it is part of that. So I think companies can, can ignore it and, and then these conversations can be uncontained or they can spill into something um, more serious like stress or burnout or companies can uh, acknowledge the conversations, work with them, embrace them and, and almost like supercharge them and help people to become the best people they can be, the best leaders they can be, the best managers they can be. Um, so I think that's, that's always where we've, where we've come at it is that these conversations will happen whether people want them to mm. or not. So why not embrace them and, and make them the best kind of conversations that, that they could be? 
No, it's really cool. And what, what, like, what formats do you think that that could take? Do you think it's like policies are the right way forward? Do you think it kind of happens from the ground up? Does it need to happen from the top mm. down? I'm sure you, all three of you have got mm. yeah, lots yeah. of opinions on that. Uh, I think it's both top down and, and, and bottom up. It, it starts top down. It always starts with leaders. They, they set the tone and, and set the culture. So if a leader gets up and, and is um, vulnerable and, and talks about their struggles or stresses or fears or hopes or aims, then actually what that does is empowers their employees to, to do the same. And then other people will start sharing those things and then colleagues will start talking and then you get the, the kind of bottom-up pressure as well. Um, so I think that that's always where it starts. And then I think just creating, as you were saying, spaces for people to learn more about themselves. And that might be a space to learn the, the, the kind of leader they want to be. And then they can use that space to grow into that sort of leader or, or manager. And that's still them working on their, on their mental health. Um, but it, it really does start with, with the leader set, set in the tone. Mm. Uh, and yeah, Madeline, I was going to say, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting. So, totally agree. Top down and bottom up are necessary levers. <clears throat> Ultimately, it's going to be an individual taking action. I think we would be surprised about the opportunity for sort of anyone to be a leader. People, even someone at nine of the lowest level mm. or a manager, just even when you have that little bit of influence, whether when it's a small circle or you just have good relationships, it is a huge opportunity to still step forward and kind of set the tone or set a role model for others about how you understand what you need, know it, are confident in it, and take time for yourself. So I would say just because having the leader ultimately give the full permission and mandate kind of mm. for people to either talk about their mental health or do the things you need for your well-being mm. is critical. That doesn't mean that you can't start something from the bottom. So mm. wouldn't despair yeah. if the CEO hasn't yet, you know, stood up and made a statement about that. I think mm. that's really interesting about setting like this culture of kind of safety where you can say, actually, I need to go and take my hour, my hour lunch break. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to, you know, go to the gym. I'm going to do this, that and the other because actually I'm feeling, feeling a bit stressed today. I think having that conversation and talking to your colleagues and being as open as you can be, or you feel as comfortable to be, um, is so important, I think. But also, can, when you say that, are you saying that with confidence of, I'm going to go and do this now because I know that when I come back to my desk, I'm going to be way more efficient than if I hadn't done that. Mm. And therefore, actually, it's better for me, better for the team and better for the organisation if I do this, yeah. which is a really different conversation, that's a really different tone than just saying, I'm going to do this because I feel bad. Yeah. No, and both true. are true, right? It's just about working mm. within the frame of what people expect. So. Mm. Petra, have you got any thoughts? Oh, so many. Yeah. <laughs> I so can see many. you in the corner. I'm like, <laughs> oh. um, I'll, yeah, I'll try and keep it brief. Because um, this is what I do, right? Um, is help people think about that strategic impact. I believe it can start from anywhere. So passionate people, often it's the one in four who've mm. had an experience mm. who are passionate in some way. But to create sustainable cultural change, we need our leaders to be vulnerable, be open, follow some of Brené Brown's advice in her latest book, Dare to Lead. How do you create emotional safe spaces? When there's real cultural sustainable change, it does come from a policy perspective as yeah. well, but where those policies come to life. So if your absence policy doesn't cover mental health, it needs to. Um, what about your induction process? Is, does it talk about your mental health and your resources? Does your intranet have your resources on like easily accessible? Um, do you have a mental health ambassador program or uh, some program where you've got some internal campaigning for positive mental health 
uh, initiatives rather than just, ooh, we've got the quiet room where you can go and cry if you need to. You know, that sometimes the thing is like, oh, we've got a mental health ambassador program. They'll talk to you when you're struggling, right? But we want to come from like these positive initiatives mm. of like you guys do the coaching and like how do we come from a performance um, happiness perspective and accepting all human moods and, and what we need rather than just maybe the, the, yeah. the sadder sides. Mm -hmm. um, so it needs to come from, from all fronts, but generally it's about creating space for honest and open conversations and following some of like the Thriving at Work report has some recommendations for creating a mental health plan, having open conversations and routinely monitoring. So there's these great frameworks out there to get people started. But I often ask HR teams, do you have a plan? They'll go, yes, we've got a plan. I ask anyone else, I go, do, is there a plan? They're like, I don't know. So it's like what's happening in the gap between the communication from what's happening mm. in diversity and inclusion or H, like over there to like the everyman and how they ex are experiencing it. I think that's really interesting about how these things get circulated and yeah. promoted because it's one thing having it in a, you know, on a page in a 555 page induction handbook or whatever. How we bring it to life. Yeah. Yeah. And whose responsibility is that, do you think? So I've seen so many different roles take responsibility, whether it's diversity and inclusion, whether it's HR, it could be culture and engagement. There's so many different roles and it could be health and safety. Mm. It, there, there's often, and in a way, the, the troubling thing with big corporate, with big companies, is where they're all taking a little bit of it, but they're sort of in silos. Yeah. So diversity and inclusion are doing something over here. HR are thinking about absence policies and talent retention, but they're not necessarily talking to each other. So my first question, what, if I go into a company is, what are we doing already and what departments is it in? Uh, can we bring it all together and put it under an umbrella of well-being and mental health? And that's the first step of uniting the conversation. And then, and then it's also celebrating the wins because it's like, oh, you guys do loads of stuff already. Mm. And they're like, oh, right, yoga's part of it. We're a physical health and it's all part of it. And then you start from a, a baseline that um, applies to that specific mm. company. I think it's really interesting what you just said because we, so at Headbox, we're 60, so by no stretch of the imagination, a large corporate. Um, but we have um, a health and wellbeing committee, we have like a women in Headbox committee, we have um, a, a couple of the team who've been sent to be trained as like uh, mental health first aiders, loads of different staff. And we kind of took a step back, and our new CFO, she's been with us for about seven months was like, you do realise you guys have about nine committees and you're all actually pulling in the same direction, like this is bonkers. And actually you have about six people in the team who are on all of them. Right. <laughs> and it took, it took somebody with a fresh set of eyes to look at it, to go, oh, actually, we can probably group those three together and have a diversity and inclusion or have a, you know, whatever this one is. And, and um, so I don't even think it's just a big corporate thing. No. I think actually you can have the best intentions in an organisation but sometimes that holistic overview is what is what you need yeah. to pull it to pull it all together. You must see a lot of this, George, like lots of different setups and processes and policies. Yeah, and, and I, I think people haven't quite figured out the whole mental health, physical health, environmental health, financial health thing yet. And there's yeah. like they're all like you said, there's one over there, one over there. People talk about well-being but not mental health I think it just it gets confusing and we hear a lot of businesses have things like EAP so employee assistance programs in place that they're they're just like never used and employees don't know that that they're in the business I think businesses haven't haven't just stood up and said here is our mental health policy here's everything in it here's where you go if you need support here's what you can do mm. I think things are, are brought in and they're sort of kept in the shadows a little bit or they're they're tied under the well-being well-being umbrella rather than just mental health so as you said, 
there are things in place, but employees don't know that they're there, so they don't know how to use them. So I think the, the companies that I've seen do it best are the ones who just get up and say, here's our health policy, mental health, physical health, financial health, all of it. And it's like one intranet, people know where they need to go. It's, it's really easy to, to access support. Yeah. And I think the, the things then build on the other things. So someone might come to a Sancta session and realize that actually it's not for them, therapy's better. And they'll use the internal therapist. So all of the, the kind of services will, will talk to each other, basically. Mm. Madeline, have you got any, any thoughts? Yeah, look, I mean, that's absolutely right. Um, I'm, I'm working with a think tank called Tomorrow's Company on productivity, mental health, and technology in the workplace. And they did an analysis of where the issue of mental health was falling within organizations. Mm. And this is exactly the issue. They're using this, we're using this kind of analysis of the prism, which is like where it falls in terms of who that person is, what level of strategic uh, relevance they have, yeah. how much budget determines what happens off the back of that. Mm. So it's a little um, path dependent within organizations at the moment. Ultimately, we do see organizations all moving to something that looks reasonably similar, which is you've got a great policy. You've figured out how that needs to fit into what you've got. You've got a place which is well advertised. It's also psychologically mandated. It's okay. If you feel bad, go here, right? Yeah. You've got something that's helping you build that self-awareness and intelligence and self-knowledge. And you've got a set of kind of perks and benefits or things that make it easier for people to access the things that they, they want to, you know, for mm -hmm. their positive health. Um, but the format that that actually takes in every organization will need to have cultural reference with the way that, you know, that organization actually works. No, absolutely. So, so let's come at this from the other side. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, who it falls with, is it the individual, is it top down, bottom up? Um, maybe the, you know, the difficulties and, and like you just said, like the kind of cultural nuances between businesses. But what, what are the blockers, right? So they, these companies that, you, that we've been talking about that haven't quite yet opened themselves up to this conversation, perhaps they're working in the background on it. Um, but what, what do you guys see as kind of three experts as, as being the problem that big businesses, why they don't want to get stuck into this? I think, I think a, a lot of it's budget, but then there's always a step before that and I think mm. there's not the budget for these things because people don't really get the conversation around mental health yet. I think businesses are uh, trying to prove the ROI of, of mental health so they're, they're stuck in the sort of figures and numbers and stats bit of it which obviously is important but mm. people haven't seen that mental health is just as important as, as physical health so there's not as much, much budget for it. Um, people are scared that if they open the mental health conversation, it's like opening Pandora's box and suddenly everyone's going to be depressed or anxious, which obviously it, it doesn't work like that. But yeah. I think there's, there's a, a lack of maybe education and awareness even before that. So then there's kind of a bit of fear and then there's not the budget and it all just sort of impacts e each other. Do you think it's the unknown as well, a little bit? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100, I just... Yeah, I think, I think businesses are, are, are worried, maybe quite rightly, that when they open this conversation, it, it will mean people are off sick or people leave the company whereas you know we we've seen it's, it doesn't work like that but yeah i, I think mm. i think people are, are scared of of what might happen when they start this conversation um, we we obviously know there's incredible positives to it um, but until there's more education and awareness around that i think businesses yeah. will sort of be a bit more hesitant to, to touch the conversation mm. i guess um i would echo that and add some so first problem is it's not happening here so we don't, yeah. that's not the case. 
that is very easily refuted through a quick sampling of employees to figure out it is happening here. Okay, great. Let's do something about it. Yeah. I mean, often that may be a leader who actually emotionally wants to do something, doesn't have the data, doesn't have the argument, the, the C-suite saying, sorry, like we only do things with data, so this sounds very fluffy, right? Yeah. So getting a bit of information about what's actually happening is extremely powerful. Having confidence that I, as a leader, have a toolbox to help my employees and my organization address those things and also build positive habits is incredibly important. Um, and I'm sure the work that you're doing <coughs> directly kind of impacts whether organizations feel confident or not in dealing with those things. Um, and then the last is, is there is a trust issue. There's definitely a trust issue on the part of employees with respect to companies, mm. particularly large ones. And so we found that the role for intermediating with technology can be quite helpful to anonymously collect information about what's going on at the root level and then help organizations make more informed strategic budgetary decisions. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that trust point is really interesting. Mm. You do, do you agree? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's often fear, as you said, George, um, of uh, opening Pandora's box and also time. People are like, we haven't got time to have these deep, meaningful conversations, we've got targets to deliver on, right? And so a lot of our leadership training mm. is showing people that we, it's not our responsibility to fix people or to have all the answers. And we'll do an exercise just around active listening where the person listening to the challenge it needs to literally shut up and um, not say a word. And, and, and it's amazing to then debrief the internal dialogue that's going on for people. Oh, just do it this way. Oh, I know exactly how you feel. Just do it this way. If you do this, then you'll be fine, right? And what we're doing is we're trying to make ourselves feel more comfortable rather than actually mm. effectively helping the other person because silence is tricky. And just sitting there and going, dude, that's hard. You know, we're like, well, we're the leader. We should be telling them what to do. Mm. And so leave it, like, that's a really great experiential exercise for people to realize a little bit of empathy, a little bit of listening, and it doesn't have to take a long time to just, you're, you're getting coffee or you're in the corridor to really see someone and ask them a question that isn't just, uh, you know, about football scores, no offense. Um, you know, it's just um, about connection. And so that's some of the, the, the challenge is just alleviating the fears. I'd say, yes, budget is a constraint, but there I've seen companies where they have grassroots programs of passionate people. They've got their Slack channel that's open around mental health. People are talking, and that doesn't cost a fucking thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cost a thing to lead your team meeting by talking about mental health and being open yourself and saying, hey, guys, what can we do to effectively help you feel fulfilled and celebrate the wins <coughs> at the end of the week? Right? Mm, yeah. so, so I think we have to, yes, a uh, gold standard would be get some training in, get some awareness going, have use something, whether if it's an EAP, I ask leaders who's got the number in their phone. So they can literally, in conversation, say, did you know that this is the number? Like, people don't have it. So like, yeah. no wonder they can't effectively, in the moment of the conversation, signpost people somewhere. Right? I think that's so interesting. It's really important. Like, this is, it's, it's um, you don't need, need products really mm. like this is not a perks and benefits sort of question yeah this is a self-awareness training personal development question and an organizational development question all of which can be done with very 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 little budget mm. with the right kind of 
indication and content and support. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, if you do invest in, in beautiful environments, uh, you, you know, your spaces, which take into account diversity, and, you know, if you do have the on-site coach and you do have the tra training and development, your leadership structure, like, of course, that's amazing, and we should prioritize things, those things, because we're, pri we're putting budget into so many other things that might not have the, the biggest ROI on people's um, staying in your business, right? Mm -hmm. But I just don't, I think that's a limiting factor. And it's people who have a fixed mindset of this is how it's always been, therefore that's how, like I know everything, this is how it's always been. Those are the, the, the tricky ones. And the world of work is changing and those are the people that are eventually going to be losing talent if they can't adapt their, their working practices. Mm. Mm. No, I think that's really, really interesting. I think my next question is around kind of the boundaries between like professional life and personal <coughs> life. And we've spoken a lot about you know, the steps that an individual can take, a company can take, you know, the kind of grassroots side of it or, you know, the top-down policy side of it. Um, the last few questions that we have are around tech and kind of and, and what that enables or actually prohibits in some instances. So talking about this connection between professional and personal life, obviously most of us here are glued to our phones, right? And Or glued to two or three phones and an iPad and a MacBook and whatever else, right? So actually those lines... Um, and, and Amy, who, who's on my team, will, will, um, will vouch for me. Last night we were emailing and WhatsApping about, you know, the questions and the introduction and, you know, had she sent these over to, you know, to the venue or whatever. Sorry, Amy, probably about 9pm. Um, but the lines are really blurred, right, because you're, we're, we're hyper-connected all the time. Um, so what steps, Madeline, this, we're going to start with you on this one, what steps can you take to, to try and separate that a little bit and or, or disconnect? I mean, that's such a great question. Uh, we don't have to be hyper-connected all the time. Mm. Is that, it is totally our decision if we want to be hyper-connected. So, this is like literally the end <laughs> on that. <laughs> now, now, of course, there are certain dependencies <laughs> in that you may have pre-existing client expectations, you may have pre-existing team expectations. Yeah. All of those things can be adapted over time. Mm. And I just really want to encourage you to deeply consider that. Do you want to be hyper-connected? When do you want to be connected? When do you not want to be connected? When is it necessary to be connected, actually, mm. right? When you just should just kind of pick up the phone rather than the back and forth, yeah. the emails and stuff. And then have that as an open conversation with the people that you work with, or even your clients, mm. about how that's working. Is that working for me? Is that working for you? And then consider whether there are opportunities to make changes. Uh, that's absolutely the first step. Yeah, I, I, I love that because, to be honest, I last year I completely burnt myself out because I, which is silly working at a mental health startup, but I'm, I'm going to get judged now. Um, but I, I love the work I do. I'm passionate about it. So I was connected all the time, mm. all the time. I was emailing in in the on the weekends, in the evening, um, early morning. I was always thinking about work. On the weekends, my mind was in work. My friends were like, can you stop talking about work? It was just work, 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 work. And I thought I was on this like big mission to, to save the world and I had to kind of really go for it all the time. But actually, what I did was completely burn myself out. And then I, I actually didn't want to turn up to work anymore. And I was stressed and I wasn't sleeping well. Um, and I wasn't really enjoying myself. So I, I had to kind of take a step back and have a real look at my life and, and what I was doing. And from that, I've completely disconnected. So I've, I've muted all notifications on my phone. So only by opening the app will I, will I see things. So that's work email, Slack, literally everything. Mm. And that, that has been amazing for me. And now I might occasionally dip in on, on the weekend, but it's 
coming from a place of me really wanting to do it that weekend, not because I, I'm putting kind of stress or, or pressure on myself. Um, so I think that that was a real learning curve for me that I'd I'd gone through a mental health crisis and I'd fixed myself. So I was like, I'm not going to go back to that again. And I was like, actually, I'm I'm going back down that that path again. And I think a big part of it came from the fact that I was too connected to my phone and not connected enough to the other side of George, not just Sanctus George, but you know, uh, Jim George or George that likes to go for a drink with his mates. I'd, I'd lost connection with, with that side and that's when my, my mental health started to suffer. Mm. But also you were so passionate about your cause. Mm. And I think we shouldn't disregard that, that this passion that we have for the things that we're working on is so motivating and that is why, you know, employee might show up extremely engaged but they're also burning themselves out at the exact same time, right? And you have no idea yeah. about that. So I think there's a really interesting thing about giving ourselves the time and space to think like, like we have long lives, like it's okay. We can achieve some things now, we can achieve some things later. Mm -hmm. And also it may not need to be me that needs to do all of this. Maybe there are other people that can kind of mm. share in that. Yeah, Thank I, you so much. Yeah. I, I think it's about balance as well. I, I thought that if I worked more and harder, then I'd do better at work. And mm. so I started to, to not go on like really late nights with, with my mates because I was like, if I have a really bad hangover, then I can't, I can't work. Whereas actually that was counterproductive because by having less connection time, my mental health suffered and then I didn't want to go to work. So I've actually learned that having balance, which could be going to have a drink with my mates, makes me feel better. So when I go into work, I put more into my work. So mm. I think it is this, this like balance word that, that I've really learned over the last few months that, that's helped me. And it's balance that applies to you. Again, it's mm. not a one-size-fits-all, yeah. right? Mm. And, like, I love technology. Let's be real. I love that I can do an email on the train. Like, th I, that just makes me very happy. It's so efficient, right? Um, I also love that I can listen to the Sanctus podcast while I'm walking, right? Thanks for the plug. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Um, Guys, this is about our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any podcast. Like, I love that I can do personal development at the same time as walking or, or you know, getting yeah, somewhere. Like, yeah, I love yeah, sure. that, that I use Insight Timer as um, a great meditation app. I love that um, I there's a gym app so I can book my classes while I'm on the go and you know like there's so many great things about how we use technology I also know that if I there's a self-awareness piece that if my breath starts getting shallow and my heart starts like hurting a little bit I'm like oh maybe my body's telling me something I have learned like I keep I don't have my phone in my bedroom I've got an old school alarm clock so that I don't do the classic 3 a.m. I've slightly stirred let me check on my phone and then I'm like oh Instagram post what um, you know, and then I can't sleep, like, um, I was doing that for a while. Um, and when you run your own business, and I'm so passionate about what I do, that I love impact, I love responding to people's DMs and, like, connecting with people. And I have two kids, so I've got a 16-year-old who's now taller than me, which is fascinating, um, and a 13-year-old. And I've realized that sometimes it's about quality, not quantity. That might sound terrible, but how often do we spend... 10 minutes, 15 minutes, five minutes of undivided attention with the people that we love mm. that isn't, oh, what is that other thing that I do? What's that event I need to plan? What's the detail that I forgot, right? Um, and I actually go, I'm gonna put my phone down. So I've got a structure with my kids where I spend time with my 13-year-old for about an hour. Um, and we're, we, we might be watching TV, but we'll be talking. And then uh, she goes to bed, and then I spend time with my 16-year-old, and we're talking, you know? So it's like, how do we proactively make conscious decisions about the quality time? You know, I've, had, I've been on dates where people are checking their phone, and I'm like, really? 
you know? Or um, you're out hanging with your friends and three of them are just like, let me just like Instagram my food. And you're like, really? Like, mm. this is the time when mm. we can personally connect. Yeah. But, but it's good to like, like but the, the great, there's great stuff about technology and we have choice, as you're saying. Mm. I think that's such an interesting point about Instagram. I recently um, deactivated my Instagram account and that probably it's been about three months now. And what I've found is that when I go and see friends from school, friends from uni that perhaps I don't see all the time, uh, they can say like, oh, I went on this amazing holiday or whatever. And I can go, oh, cool, like where, like where did you go? Because I haven't seen it on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. So I, what I found is that I was actually meeting up with friends and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. Like I saw all the pictures from your honeymoon. Like it's almost like we don't need to talk about that because <laughs> I've, I've seen it. I know it. your life. Yeah, I know your life. Yeah. Like I'm really, I am actually stalking you. Did you have withdrawals? Uh, Deactivating um, your account? I don't know. I had like physical withdrawals, like as in, yeah, as in I go like, to where, do what it. What do I do with my thumbs? Yeah, oh. yeah but actually, I, very quickly, a couple of days, a couple of days after I did it, I was like, this is great because I felt that the real time, like in person connections I was having with people, felt so much more just kind of sincere. And actually, we weren't skipping over things because I'd already seen it, or I was mm. asking people about things because I was really interested in. You know, and I think that going back to your point, George, about like connecting with your friends, I think it's, you know, and whether or not I'll stay off it, I mean, it's probably it's probably a little bit ill advised for a head of marketing not to have an Instagram account. So we'll keep that between everyone in this room. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm loving the break from it. I, I love it. I think there's some you, you mentioned something as well about communicating with your team. Like I will sometimes um, send a voice note to I've got uh, my web designers in um, the States mm. and my PA. I'll sometimes message her at 10 p.m. But we've had a conversation where like I, I go, my phone is on silent when I don't want to answer anything. So if you message me, that's fine. But I'm taking ownership of when I respond and don't respond. Mm. And also, George, you and I were talking about nature as we were looking at the city view. We were like, dude, this is amazing. Um, that was just me saying that. That's not your voice. Um, I wish and, it was. Yeah, but we were talking about nature, and like I'll, I recently went on a four-day retreat. It was like about um, shamanism. It was super deep. But I, it was, it's like active recovery for me, and my phone didn't work. So phone didn't work, and I was in, immersed in a self-development experience connected to nature that just resourced me, right? Mm. And so it's finding the thing that can give you the resource break, which like I like active recovery because I don't just want to sit on my ass watching Netflix as my recovery, you know? I want to like learn or develop yeah. or be in a different space. And so it's finding the thing, the trick for you, right? Mm. Mm. I'm very, very conscious that I could sit here all day, but um, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then I'm going to open up to the floor, so I hope there's lots of questions that's going to be coming our way. But the last one is, if you had to tell me, each of you, one sort of positive trend or improvement that you personally want to see happen within this field over the next, you know, five to ten years, um, or however long, really, what, 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 what would it be? George, what would, what would yours be? I think I want to see us get to the point where companies are investing in mental health because they know it's just the right thing to do and not only for, for ROI, obviously that's, mm. that's part of the conversation, but I think I look at physical health at the moment and a lot of like gym passes are given out, for example, but companies aren't like, measuring the ROI of the gym. They're not weighing their employees every day or, or checking for muscle growth. They just know it's a good thing to do. Mm. And I want us to get to that point with, with mental health too. Yeah, it's a really good point. Thanks. <laughs> I try. I, maybe, I guess this is maybe more for humanity in general, but um, the trend of individuals kind of taking back control, whether that's from 
what does my organization say that I need to be doing or what does society say I need to be doing or what is this technology app telling me that I need yeah. to be doing? We have an app, but still. Um, and yeah. feeling confident and psychologically confident, visually confident, it's okay to take the time to get what you need. If everyone were to feel like that, I think that would make a huge change in the world. So. Just one thing. <laughs> you, can, you can have two because um, we've got okay. 10 minutes. <laughs> so first of all, I want, people, I want people who are being interviewed, so going to a job, to be asking the panel who's interviewing them what mental health uh, infrastructure yeah. they have in their business. So that the people interviewing are like, oh, if we want to retain these people, we better have something. Like, I want that personal responsibility yeah. to, to, to happen. Um, I also want to see uh, more men, uh, senior men, all men talking about mental health. And that's not to say women are doing it all correctly, but the suicide rate is still higher for men. Mm -hmm. And there's something, uh, I was having a debate last night with my siblings who all live on different continents because somebody had lost uh, a friend to suicide. And we were having the debate about the intention, whether, whether it was a selfish act or, you know, the, and obviously that got me going. Um, <laughs> but it, we talked about masculinity and how th this, is st this shouldn't be happening. Mm. And we can have all the great initiatives in the world, but if they're not being utilized by men and creating space for honest conversation, and it's just like, go over there and talk. Go over there. And if you feel too much shame, like, we're not really going to ask you what's going on. We need to have open conversations so it's normalized. Mm. And I, I, like, I just want to see the suicide, not to end on a low, but I want to see those suicide yeah. rates go down. And I think mm. that will come from open conversations, individuals taking ownership of mental health, and senior leaders knowing that if they don't do it, they're not going to retain talent and they're going to have long-term absence. Mm. Mm. No, they're all amazing points, guys. Thank you for that. We're going to um, open it up to the floor. I think we have a microphone. Oh, let me see. Um, has anybody in the audience got any questions about anything we've spoken about or uh, anything else? Uh, Jack, you can uh, kick things off with the mic. So you guys have spoken a lot about how personal technology can inhibit or like uh, give a problem to mental well-being. But coming from a company that's trying to improve mental well-being through technology, what opportunities do you see within organisations to use technology to improve well-being because it's been very people focused as it should be but there should I think there's a, uh, an opportunity for tech to take a role there. Mm. Mm. I can do one of those which is um, technology can be actually quite helpful for building self-awareness and there are uh, that sounds maybe ironic but whether that's giving you a place to kind of track and feedback on how you're doing or to <coughs> actually gather insights from what's happening around you and become more aware of what's happening particularly if you feel still a little uncomfortable about doing that in a physical space. It can mm. be really wonderful. Um, the other just as a complete left field thing, but which is <laughs> talk about demands, resources, and kind of the imbalance that leads to feelings of stress and things like that. The more that we can have technologists, new startups, identifying like real kind of like bureaucratic administrative pain points for people mm. and just smoothing the work process in a way which is not overwhelming so that we can kind of keep up with what is necessary in a competitive market, <laughs> the better that will be for our, mm. our mental health. <laughs> yeah, and I think like not, not to shame tech at all, I think mm. like tech is literally amazing. Mm. I, I think maybe we've like, yeah, like not, not to kind of, um, yeah, do it, do it down. I think it, it comes to the way people, people use tech. So I think that there's the sort of common studies that say that uh, social media can, can impact people's mental health negatively but then there was a, a study recently that showed that actually it found that people who were in a bad place for their mental health 
turn to social media as like an escapism, mm. which made it worse. So that's where the, the results come from. Whereas actually people who are in a, in a better place with their mental health, when they use social media, it can actually enhance their mental health. So I think it comes down to how people are using text. If people are using it in an unhealthy way, maybe to um, escape or, or avoid something in their lives or because they're bored, then it can impact their mental health. But if you use it in the right way, then of course you can have incredible results and actually it can be really, really beneficial for your mental health. And just from a company perspective, one of the thriving at work recommendations is to routinely monitor mental mm. health in the workplace. Yeah. And we're in the foothills, um, the UK and overseas as well, but the UK, there's amazing tech coming out about how do we answer that question of routinely monitoring mental health in the workplace? How do we add it onto our engagement surveys mm. or whatever it might be? And I, don't, I haven't seen anyone get it perfectly right. I've seen amazing companies get bits right. And so I'm just excited about the innovation that this conversation is bringing up yeah. because it means we're getting competitive a little bit. And I love that because it means it's going to push people to actually finding the right solution for monitoring mental health in the workplace and, not, and like having a full loop so that then we go, what do we do with that information? Yeah. That's, uh, that's very exciting to me. And I think there's going to be a ripple effect globally. Mm. That's what we're doing, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love to chat about that. <laughs> cool, thanks, guys. Has anyone else got any? Can I go for the yeah, the lady in the black in the back? Hi, um, I'm Sarah Jane. I wanted to ask about how much you think the actual physical space and environment can impact on people's mental health and well-being. And as a disclaimer, I do work for a design practice. So I'd also like to ask what you'd like to see if you're designing a space from scratch. What do you think it's important to think about? This is so fascinating because we actually did a sampling of a couple of organisations to look at what are the drivers of we see mood, stress, energy and motivation, so physical, mental, emotional signals, across work and non-work. And one of the things we asked about was physical environment. But we asked, are any of these things blockers? So where, are there things that are making you not feel at your best? And I gave this presentation at a Workplace Trends conference, which was absolutely fascinating. Because the physical environment was a very small sliver, actually. So the physical environment was not a massive blocker to anyone feeding or being at their best. And we had a lot of conversations about that afterwards. People were sort of like, why are you, why are you here if this is like not relevant? And the, the, the main point was the physical environment is, is a real enabler for the activities that people need to be doing in order to be engaging with each other meaningfully, having good, productive, deep work, having time to rest and relax. So best practice would say, what are the sampling of, what are the activities that people need to be doing in order to have a great working space and working culture, and then to design the spaces to enable that, right, rather than get in the way, yeah. Yeah, I think to, to build on that, we. So we put coaches physically into workplaces. So they'll be in that workplace's room, like a, a coaching room. And the rooms that are amazing and they've got plants and pictures and it's sofas and colorful, the coaches say they can do their best work there. The rooms that maybe aren't so hot, so maybe it's just like quite clinical, white walls, like no natural light. The coach says they can't, like they feel quite almost like burnt out at the end of the day. And also we get a lot of feedback from the, the people that attend the sessions. They didn't feel they, they were as comfortable in that room. So I think, as you said, the, mm. the coaching still happens, but the environment impacts the, the level of that coaching. Yeah, I think I've probably seen the worse end and the better end. And I do sometimes look at offices where you know, you've got quiet spaces and loungy bits and like office bits rather than just cubicles and light. And I mean, they just look so inspirational as places to work. 
but I used to work in the charity sector. I used to work with young offenders. I used to um, manage a telephone counseling service. We used to work in a basement. Like we've worked in horrific kind of um, urban schools and youth centers. And, and some of the most passionate people could connect authentically and create amazing work and impact. So I, I still stand by the, the, the connection the human empathy like trumps everything, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and if you, on top of that, have an amazing space, it just 10x's that. So it all, it's all puzzle pieces that play a part in the whole, but it's not contingent on that. If, like I used to take my team to the park for our meetings, we'd go for a walk because I would make it work in the, envi the wider environment that we were in. And so how much do we do um, walking one-to-ones or um, uh, kind of movement, move our body within these spaces rather than just going, we have to sit here in this heavy kind of energy. Mm. So I think all of these components play a part. Mm. That was a really good question. Thank you. There's a lady. Sorry, Amy, don't get comfortable. There's a lady. <laughs> There's a lady at the back there. Hi, I'm Dee. I work in recruitment. And I wanted to ask a question that goes back to how we genuinely get internal stakeholders to engage with change. And I think one of the frustrations I've had in my career when I've been stressed has been, well, that's just, this is the job. Mm. So if you're finding it stressful, maybe this isn't for you. And I think that's very dismissive. And yeah. it can be quite isolating to staff who, for example, a graduate, or an entry-level position where they've never done it before and they may find it stressful, how, are we, how do we help change that stigma of, well, this isn't for you if you can't handle a specific stressful period or a particular task of your job role? That's an excellent mm, question. Yeah, mm. What do you think, guys? Yeah, I mean, and that, that's like the, like the golden question as well. Um, I think it's obviously some, like, Jobs can be stressful and are stressful, and some maybe are more stressful than others. Mm. I was talking about the events, and when people get into certain jobs, they, they probably know it's going to be a, a certain level of stress. But I think companies have a duty to support people through those those job roles and, and through their career. Mm. I think for this, just from, from my experience, for businesses who maybe or, or leaders who don't see why they should support people through certain things at the moment, we've seen some of our our partners have actually pitched more of the business case of, of support and, and mental health to their leaders. So rather than trying to talk about mental health in the, maybe the way we've talked about it today, they'll actually work more on the business case. So maybe it's um, attrition rates in a company or, or sick days and use that to prove the need for support within a business. They talk in that language to the leader and then the leader starts to understand it and then invest in, in these things. And I don't think it's, it's, it's not the way that I'd want it to always be brought in, but that's that's the level that, that some people are at. Um, so I think that's that's one way I've seen um, some of our partners do it, where maybe senior leaders are a bit more resistant to, to these kind of things. And then even when you have that senior leadership buy-in, what often happens is inconsistency along middle management. So you have some people who buy in and maybe are managing with empathy, and some people who are still in a fixed mindset mm -hmm. who are saying things like, well, this is just the business. Um, it really bothers me when people only say, you need to work on your resilience. You work mm -hmm. on your resilience. And it has to come from both sides, company and personal responsibility. But sometimes the people where the cracks are beginning to show, they've been resilient the longest. 
Like you have no idea what story is behind the scenes that they've actually been resilient about. And now this stressful environment is tipping them over the edge based on a lifetime of, of trauma or all sorts of things, right, that you know nothing about. So it's not necessarily the right approach. There are some companies that will remain toxic on this topic and hold on to stigma for the next five to 10 years, they will. And sometimes we need to make a choice to leave that environment to look after our own mental health. Sometimes we need to manage upwards to come yeah. full circle to that idea of like, this will help like educate the people around you about how you can be your best self. Mm. Um, but it's a ripple effect. It's a slow mm. ripple effect of change that has only been going on for a little while that this conversation has opened up. And in the same way as diversity, homophobia, sexism, you know, we just need to keep, the, keep chipping away at the conversation. But each of us can make a difference in our day-to-day -day lives of how we take responsibility, no matter what level we're at, for normalizing the conversation. And kind yeah. of, do, do you know what I mean? Completely. Adelaide, is there anything to add? Yeah, I think I totally hear you. I mean, I've worked in environments like that. Um, there is this spectrum of organizations. There will be a certain set of organizations we've worked with recruitment companies that um, don't basically don't care if people churn. And that's baked into the business model. They're fine with it. 20, 30 percent, cheap to hire, cheap to fire, not a problem. It's hard to do anything in those mm. organizations. We worked with some angles on that, which tries to reframe reframe the problem and say, well, what are your opportunities for growth and how do you want to get there? And that requires people who are healthy, high capacity, resourced, and creative. And to be creative, you can't be stressed. This is actually, there's research on this. Mm. So then it starts to kind of open up a new conversation um, and kind of take it from there. So it will a little bit depend, but that, because they've already addressed cases where organizations believe that churn matters. <laughs> when they don't believe that churn matters, try and reframe it as actually we want to do more in the workplace. We want to do really cool things and grow the business. In order to do that, I actually do need to be my best self. Here's the research that says that, and this is what I need from you. Thank you. That was a brilliant question. Uh, I think we've probably got time for one more. James, you put your hand up a few times. Come on. Um, Amy, can you? Thank you. Um, so we've spoken a bit about educating businesses, but I'd be interested to know your perspectives on how best to educate employees as well. I mean, from a personal perspective, I suffered with my own mental health issues, and it wasn't until I sought out help that I really saw the benefits that it can have on myself. So before that point, I was a bit sceptical about the benefits it could have on me about opening up about my own mental health, but getting through to employees, how do businesses get through to them and highlight the benefits it can have for, for their overall wellness? Can I ask you a question? Yep. What led you to seeking help? Like, yeah. did someone talk to you? Did you get educated? Like, what happened? So, for me, it was a, a very close family member who struggled very severely with their own mental health issues, being in and out of psychiatric hospital. Um, and for me, my family, you know, I could see it was taking its toll on them. And for me, I almost felt like I was the person that had to main, remain strong. And I didn't want to show any emotion in that way. Um, and I saw the real benefit that it had on, in this case, my, my sister's well-being, seeking out help. So. Seeing the benefit I had there, I thought, okay, you know, maybe I can try this, and maybe speaking can actually have a real benefit on me, even though I don't want to show it to my family. Mm. And then I went, and you know, that's when I really saw the benefit it can have. Um, so that was my. That's beautiful. Idea. Yeah. So you you witness somebody close to you seeking help. Mm. So there's something about 
no matter what level we're at in an organization, all of my facilitators have a mental health story and we talk about ourselves and how we got help mm. and what we did. We have to lead by example in order to then create space for other people to talk about their mental health and where to get support. And again, the, from the male perspective of like, I've got to be strong for everyone, show no weakness, those sorts of things. Can a man in the org, I mean, I work in construction companies and they're like 98.9% .9 men, right? And I'm like, masculinity suit, like guys, let's talk. And as soon as they have permission, the conversations are just deep and meaningful and real, you know? So from an employee perspective, no matter if you're a mental health ambassador or a person with a personal experience, to be brave and like start that conversation mm -hmm. and go, I called the EAP or I actually found counseling on the counseling directory or I had a Sanctus coach. The more we can be open, like I've got a therapist right now. When I got divorced, I was like, change kind of can be triggering. I'm just gonna, as a preventative measure, mm -hmm. get some therapy. And I'm open about that. And that makes people go, oh, this is a personal development thing, not just a crisis thing, right? So I, I could talk about this all day, but from a personal, like when we lead by example and talk about our mental health, like your story is now gonna have a ripple effect on your family and your mates if you can be open about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that, that's what I've seen in, 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 in my group of, of guys. Like we never would have spoke about this at uni. Like it just, you know, you don't talk about it as a guy, right? You talk about how you wanna to go to the gym and how you're macho <laughs> and you don't have feelings and that kind of thing. Whereas when I started sharing, Amazingly, my mates also have emotion and, and feeling, and, and I became the guy they wanted to talk to that about. And now we're at a point where it's just really like they'll just casually say, "Yeah, I felt a bit anxious at the weekend," and it's just said, and it's not this this big scary thing. So I think yeah. leading by example, which if it comes from from leaders, amazing. Um, and I think making the conversation around mental health proactive. So when you tie it into things like performance, your mental health affects your performance, and you start talking in, in those sort of terms, and it's something you can proactively work on, then people start to realise that they can start talking about it now. It's not just this thing you talk about when you hit a crisis and, and you're depressed or anxious. You can talk about it when you um, talk about wanting to, to reach certain goals. So yeah. making it a sort of proactive, preventative conversation helps open up for, for everyone. I think that point you made earlier on about actually you know, being the one in four versus the four in four, right? So it's this idea of prevention rather than re like the, the reactive response to when you have reached a period of unrest, perhaps. Mm. I think it's so, so interesting to flip that perspective. Yeah, like I, mm. I had a, this is about a year ago, I was like really nervous about public speaking, like, I, I, like it frightened me. So I had a conversation with my boss about that and then I had a coaching session on that and that was a mental health thing. Like I was nervous and I was anxious and we talked about that and you know five years ago it would have been well that's just a, a public speaking thing whereas actually when I realized it was a mental health thing I could have the conversations with my boss and with my coach around not just public speaking but around nerves and anxiety and why I was anxious so yeah. that made me realize that anything I'm feeling right now is a mental health thing and, and it could be a performance thing or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Absolutely I think it's all about like helping people kind of find their why and some people do it because they want to be better in relationships. Mm. Some people do it because of colleagues and culture. Some people do it for achievement or performance or because health, and they have a health issue and they actually want to get through that. And there are a spectrum of things that are our reasons, our motivations for why we want to become more self-aware and share and why we want to take action. Mm. And giving people the space to find that why in different triggers is, is really important. Amazing. Guys, I think that is, I think we're out of time, even though I could sit and speak to you all morning. Mm. Um, thank you so, so much. We really appreciate you coming and hanging out with us this morning and answering all these questions. And a huge thank you, obviously, to everyone come, uh, who, who's joined us this morning. We're going to share 
um, all of our three lovely panellists' details on the follow-up email. So if you have... Sorry, but it, hopefully, if you have any questions that you want to ask them, <laughs> yeah. um, please reach out uh, directly or if you want me to connect anyone, you, you have all of our details. So big round of applause, please. Feel free. You've reached the end of another episode of Headbox Connect, and if you like what you've heard, then please subscribe and follow us on iTunes and Spotify. We are recording in our new home, the Pitch Room in Runway East, Soho. Runway East is a co-working office space for startups to meet, think and occasionally have a drink. As well as Soho, they have sites in London Bridge, Moorgate and Bristol. So if you would like to book out either this gorgeous studio in Soho or any of their other awesome event spaces, then please head over to headbox.com to check out their listings. Mm -hmm.